Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Morning, church. How's everybody today? Y'all doing well? Good to see all of you. So thankful you're here. We're in part five of our series called Renovate. And today we're going to talk about this idea of renovating the body. That sounds interesting today, kind of getting into the new year, talking about renovating the body. That's, that's something. And uh, we've been dealing with this idea out of Proverbs, which has kind of been the, the-, the theme, the series theme, if you will, of this whole series. That's Proverbs 4. It says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life, flow the springs of life. And so this is the sense that, we're renovating our body, renovating our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength. That, that's what we're digging into. And our hearts are certainly that control center of everything we do. But then the body, the body are, are, is where all of the, the impact happens. The decisions are made in our mind, in our heart, but then the body does. Willard in his book writes this, in his book, Renovation of the Heart. He says, for good or for evil, the body lies right at the center of the spiritual life. Yet... Their essential role in spirituality is the one thing most likely to be overlooked in understanding and practicing growth and grace. For whatever reason, in Christianity and just maybe in life, we have a tendency to overlook the impact that what we do physically matters. That what we do with our bodies is of great spiritual impact. And a very important piece that I want to cover today because how we view our bodies, certainly how we use our bodies matters to God. It matters a great deal, in fact. We've idolized this view of the human body, maybe all over the world, but certainly in America. Our, our bodies are an object of worship, if you will. An idol, for sure. This is why we idolize the young. I've been trying to explain this to my son lately. He's, he'll be 14 here soon, and sometimes he tells me that a certain word or a certain phrase I say is cringy. Uh, or, or something, and I, I keep trying to tell him, look, you don't know anything. And so that's a problem for you telling me what dialogue I should use. Um, when you're at least in your you know, late 20s or so, maybe you'll have seen something and done something. I, I think it's funny that the way we speak is so impacted by the teenager. That's strange to me. And yet it, it's, it's like that in so many ways. It's not just the way we speak, it's the way we look, the way the teens are dressing is the way my mom dressed in the 80s. I'm super confused. The mullets came back. Why are mustaches back? Somebody help me understand why this is happening. Rich, you pull it off well. Good job, brother. You, I don't think you ever left it behind. That's different. Um, but I'm seeing all of these trends coming full circle, and I don't understand why this certain 10 years of people or why the way that we you know, live our lives. And, but it's nothing new. It's kind of been that way for a while. And the reason, and this one's deep, all right, but this is a deep thought. I think the reason we so idolize that time period is because we don't really like getting old. We really don't. And it scares some of us really bad. And the fact is we all wish we could stay young forever. So we idolize our bodies. We idolize this desire to stay young looking. And I know this to be true because... In America, we spend an outrageous amount of money every year individually to stay young, essentially. Do you know that our, our country spends about $4.3 trillion a year on health care? $4.3 trillion. We could solve 
some of the national debt, although I don't think they care so much about solving that anymore. But we can help solve it. Just spent, stop spending. It's five, it went from 5% of the GDP to like 20% of the GDP now. It's health care. It's amazing. We spend on average 110 a month on beauty, fitness, and wellness. I think that's low. $450 billion a year in wellness products and services alone. We care a lot about how we look, about staying young, about staying fit. Some of that's okay. In fact, the Bible talks a great deal about taking care of one's temple, the body. And we're going to get into that a little bit today. But I, I want to I make the argument kind of from the other side that perhaps we're viewing ourselves wrong. Perhaps we see something in the mirror that isn't true. This over-desire for beauty, a beauty that is based on some other standard and not God's. Um, the shame of our own bodies. It leads to such psychological and physical disorders. In addition, our wrong view of our body explains, I would say, it explains a lot of our societal problems. The way we view ourselves and the way we view others' bodies, I think, is perhaps why this is one of the most hypersexualized people. There's eating disorders, there's, there's gender wars, there's racism. If we cared a little bit less about how we look, a lot of that stuff would change. It just would. And I think perhaps it's because we view ourselves through a different lens than God's. But as believers, we can do something different. That we can see ourselves as God sees us and see others as God sees them. How do you view your body today? What's your relationship with you? Do you struggle with your self-image? You ever wondered what God wants? Does he call you good or, or less than? It happens that these questions have been asked before. That's good news. Because I, I only really know how to preach the Bible. That's probably a good thing for you to hear. I don't get up here and preach my opinion. My opinions aren't all that great. Unless they're based in the word of God. And then I find they're pretty, they're pretty amazing. And so we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 today. And I could have gone to several other places, but this one, the Corinthians are clearly questioning how to use their physical bodies and what to do, what to eat, what to, how to act. And these are questions that are valid, valid to ask and certainly something to peer into. And so in, in the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he's responding to those questions. And he responds that they can submit their bodies to God for renovation. And we too can do this. I hope that you'll see as we dig in three ways we can submit our bodies to God for renovation. Here we are, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 12 through 20. <coughs> Excuse me. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise also, will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee 
Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. God bless the reading of His Word. Amen. Now this passage seems somewhat specific, but I want to challenge you that it's, it's pretty broad. It, it's broadly about how to use our, our flesh, our bodies, this, this suit, the human body. How do we submit our bodies to God for innovation? The first is this. Give your body wholly to God's purpose. Give it wholly to God's purpose. I would challenge you that this is certainly about the body because the word body, which in the Greek is the word soma, is in here seven times. It's definitely an emphasis in this passage. It's the, it's the nature of their questioning is what do we do now? We've been saved and sanctified. How do we live? What should we eat? How do we, how do we even worship? And it sounds very much about this sexual immorality, and there's a reason for that, and I'm going to get into that. But it's much broader this idea that God, we are God's and, and He is for us and we should be living according to His purpose. This is why He begins with a phrase. Now, this isn't Paul that you'll notice in your, if you've got your Bibles, I'm not sure if it showed up this way on the screen, but you notice these things were in quotations. All things are lawful for me. This is, a, this is a, perhaps a, a, a quote of the day, something they were saying in Greek culture. Uh, perhaps even something they were starting to say in the church because... There is a nugget of truth in that, that in Christ Jesus, we have been set free. We are no longer in bondage. We are certainly not in bondage to the law. However, Jesus also said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So there's this interesting balance in where our faith should also be faithful. Our faith should also produce good work. So that's a balancing act. And so they're trying to understand this. This is the first century. Christianity is just starting to happen. There's a lot of questions. And so they're hearing this theme. All things are lawful. So why don't I just do whatever I want? Whatever feels right. Whatever I like. And yet, there's a problem with that because so much of what we have desires for is not according to God. In fact, this is why he writes in two different ways. All things are lawful for me, two different times, but there's two different ways to think about that. First of all, not everything I do is helpful. The word there, helpful, could be profitable. Some versions say profitable or expedient. This is, some say beneficial. So when I think to do something, how does this benefit me? If I, sure, I'm not under the law, but I'm under grace. That's true. But I should question my decisions based on whether or not they're advantageous to me or to the gospel. These things are deeply connected. If I make the decision to go out and get completely drunk and everybody sees me, what will that do to my witness? It'll do something. It makes an impact. And perhaps it'll make you sick. That's not good for your body. <laughs> That's just one example. If I make the decision to stay up, and this would be something I choose all the time, and I'm, I'm foolish in this way at times, that after I get all the kids in bed, I'm an introvert by nature. I need some time to decompress. Sometimes, I don't know if it's my mind or my body, but one of them says, you know what, you should decompress till about 2 in the morning. 
which is foolishness, and I pay for it the next day because I'm an adult now. I can't just choose tomorrow to not adult. So I got to get up. I got to get my kids to school. I got to get to work, and I'm exhausted because I made a foolish choice. I have to, yeah, sure, that's lawful. Sure, that's fine. It's not even sinful in that way. However, is it helpful? Is it beneficial? I could plug and play so many different things that I do in life and go, is that helpful, what I'm doing there? I'm borderline addicted to to Pepsi, y'all. I mean, it's kind of bad. And I've tried to fight it off, right? I get those caffeine headaches really bad. That's not helpful. I know it. Every time I take a sip, I'm like, this is literally full of, there's nothing in here that's good for me. Isn't that weird that we would continue to choose to drink or eat things that we know? There's nothing about this that's good. Other than that, it tastes good. And it sends some kind of signal to my brain that goes, (laughs) (laughs) And there's a problem there that all of you face in some way. Is it helpful? And he goes on to say something, and this is even more what I'm talking about with addiction, right? Is I will be dominated by nothing. This is this, yeah, sure, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Do you understand this, Christian? That you have been completely set free. Sin has no hold on you anymore. Not really, not spiritually. Yeah, there's battles you still fight that you've been fighting perhaps for a long time, but in reality, you are free. And so it makes no sense, believer, for you to choose something that would dominate you once more. Why would you go from complete freedom back into bondage? That's what Paul's saying. Why would I make that decision to go have a new addiction? I won't do that. I've been free, and it was freed from much. We must admit, he freed us from a great deal. And I choose to no longer be in bondage. This one hit me this week. So just... Really, as I'm wrestling, just before I, even before I get up and preach to go, okay, there's some things in my life that I have to admit. I have some small bondage to. And I mentioned two of them right there, the late nights and the, and the caffeine. And there probably is a longer list, and I'm sure you might too have one. What are the things that actually I'm not in control over? When I really think about it, I have no control over them. My desires, my passions. Do they dominate me rather than the other way around? He goes on in verse 13 to say, again in a quote, and you might have heard this and thought, is Paul telling us that? Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. No, this is another quote of the day to which he responds very strongly, we have to admit. He says, and God will destroy them both. So you think food and, oh, you know, whatever I eat, whatever, whatever I do with my body, you know, it's, it's no big deal. What we consume, what we do with this flesh, no, it it is a huge deal. In fact, God has complete dominion over both. This is an amazing turn of events that he has here. And he reminds us of something, that we're both created. The food, the body, both created by God. Certainly, he has also the power to destroy them. However, he chooses to give us life. The body. The body here mentioned seven times. Soma, the living body. This is what you would use throughout the text of Scripture in Greek culture to refer to any, any, any living body, body of men or, or of animals. And he, he goes into this next section in 13, and it's really the key to our first, our first point, really. is we're, we're, It's all about God's purpose. If we can get anything right today, let me understand this, this myself, my body, it's God's. It's not my own. 
This is where he, he concludes this first thought, really, in verse 13 by saying, the body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He mentions something, and I'll say a little bit more about this in, the, in a minute, but in 13 he uses the word porneia, which is sexual immorality. That word we're very familiar with. It came right over in the Greek. It has to do with illicit sex or adultery or many other things. He's going to mention more about that in a moment. But the reason he's bringing that up is because this is actually a pretty big problem in Corinth. It's a pretty big problem throughout Greek culture. And we, we can kind of look at this and go, well, thank God that's not us. And that would be so, so silly for us to say. I would argue that we are more inundated with this type of stuff than any culture who ever existed. You know how I know this? The other day, I was on Bible Gateway, BibleGateway.com, looking through verses, and an ad popped up on the side view. And the ad was for bras. And I'm confused. I'm super confused. How did that happen? I'm looking at the Bible. I clicked the little X and said, Lord... Can you protect my computer today? I don't know what in the world is going on. And y'all think, well, that's silly. It's not silly to me. This, your phone has access to any dark, evil thing you could possibly imagine. You could do it right here, bam, bam, bam. And your kids, be, be, be aware. Be aware that they know how to use that stuff better than you. They've grown up with it. They were almost born with cell phones. It's wild. And we have such access now. In Corinth, they were dealing with this very thing that you actually, part of their worship was to go up to the Acro Corinth where there was a, a temple there with temple prostitutes. That's why he mentions prostitutes. And this, is, this was a way to come and worship in their society. And now the Christians are going, I'm, I'm not sure we should be doing that. And Paul's like, you definitely shouldn't be doing that. Because guess what? What you do with this matters to God. It matters to God. What you put in it, what you do with it. Why? Because you were meant for the Lord. Your mind, your soul, your body, your strength, your physique. It was made for God. He didn't just make your heart and your soul and your mind to worship Him. He made all of you in His very image. Which means he cares a great deal about this too. This, there's, something, there's some aspect of this that is also in the image of God. This is the very form he took as Christ Jesus in the incarnation. He looked like us. And for the Lord, our body was made. Who is the Lord? The Lord Jesus Christ. So give your bodies fully to God. They were meant for him. This is why, and we mentioned this last week in Romans chapter 12. He says, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice. The kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. This is truly the way. In fact, this is what was one of the mottos of St. Augustine. He said, Thou hast made us for Thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in Thee. This is where we belong, with Him. Our bodies are restless until then. There's a lot of different bodies in God's creation, both animate and inanimate. And He's made all of this. There's things that move, things that think, but none are like us. He's made us for a very specific purpose. Only 
Humanity was made in the image of God. Only humanity. For that reason, you might find that there's some things I really greatly disagree with when it comes to creation stories and things like that, that I have a hard time believing we descended from anything other than God himself. And so maybe that's an unpopular view. I think it's becoming more popular once again. And the idea here is that God made us uniquely for him. That's always been true. And what's really fascinating is what he made us, the purpose that he gave Adam and Eve, was actually like a small, a small little G God in this world. Now, follow my logic for a minute. This, this might sound blasphemy at the moment, but he made us in his image, and he put us over creation to have dominion over it. He, he had in his, in his mindset that we would be little rulers here falling under him as the, the great shepherd, but we would be shepherds of of our children, sure, of, of the, the animals, of the vegetation, that we were called to dominion. And what's really broken, is what, is, and what sin has done to us, is that we still long for that. And yet this twisted, crazy thing is starting to happen to us. Well, it has been for thousands of years, and that is, the create, creation now has dominion over us. And such that, Everything tempts us. Everything causes us to fall away and turn our eyes away from Jesus to a horizontal level. Everything we see goes, causes us to go from vertical to horizontal. Whereas what was supposed to happen was complete dominion in his image. What a beautiful thing that was. What a beautiful thing that will be. That's the arc, just so you know, of the Bible. If you were to read the Bible this year, you will find it's a grand narrative of redemption. That in Genesis, there's this wonderful story, and then in Revelation, we're coming back to the garden. That's the sense of Scripture, is that He has redeemed us, and He is now setting us back on course to His original intent and design, which is dominion and worship. I'm looking forward to that. That sounds like a good time. Where the temptation is gone, the sin is no longer, I'm no longer confused, but I'm fully aware of who he is and what he is to me, and that my total worship would be his. I want to start. I think that's the key to what Paul's saying here is we can begin now. Yeah, we're never going to fully overcome everything on this side of heaven, but we start. The kingdom of heaven is near. Surrender, give your body to God. Ask God to take charge of each part, your mouth. Some of y'all have a mouth that's completely out of control. That's a good starting point. James talks a great deal about this. He says it's like a rudder. It's like the bit of a horse. It causes you to go different places. It causes people certainly to think a certain way of you. Christian, I'm going to just challenge you. I don't think you should be the dirty joke factory. If that's you, if you like to make people laugh, you can do it without being nasty. I do it all the time. Most of the time I make people laugh when I don't mean to. When I'm just doing something that hurts me or is foolish. You can do that. Follow my lead. Self-deprecating humor is very, very effective. Just pick on you. People love it. Control of the mouth. Control of the eyes. This is why in this verse he says, flee from sexual immorality. This is why he says, run. There's a lot of places he says, fight. He doesn't say, fight here. He says, run. If there are places where your eyes cannot stop looking, you need to get away from those places. Run from them. Men, particularly in the room, struggle with this. Quit staying up late when your wife and kids are in bed. Run. Run. Don't fight. You can't win. This isn't a battle for you to win. It's a battle for you to run from. Know when to retreat. 
with your eyes, with your hands, with your feet. Spend time in consecration. Lord, fill my mouth with praise and with thanksgiving. Help me to keep the Sabbath with my life, to pursue God for retreat and rest. And here's the next way. The next way to submit. Recognize the spiritual significance of your body. It's for His purpose, and it is spiritually significant. It is a big deal. This is where he spends this middle section, which is a challenging bite. We have to admit, in verse 14 through 17, he mentions the resurrection here. <coughs> that God raised up Christ and that he's, he is now going to raise us up. In the, in the last day, something is coming where we will too be raised. And then he asks this question, which he asks several times in the text. He says, do you not know? Now, that's an interesting way to phrase it. He could have said, don't you know? Or, or do you know? Like if he had put it in positive language, do you know these things? But I think what he, the reason he says, do you not know? It puts a certain like, it puts a certain feel on you, right? Like as Christian, Corinthian church, church here in, in, in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, do you not know that you probably shouldn't hang out with prostitutes? Uh, that, doesn't that sound different than, do you know that you shouldn't hang out with prostitutes? That's more like, oh, oh yeah, I, didn't, I, I know that now. No, you, kn- you already knew. And this is, the, this is the very idea of the Holy Spirit here. Is part of what it does in us is conviction. This is part of the role of the Holy Spirit in your life. Not to make you feel ashamed or to make you stay in guilt, but there is conviction. When you eat or drink or do something you shouldn't, that little <laughs> feeling you get that... I probably shouldn't have done that. The non-believer doesn't get that feeling. There are some things where all people kind of get that feeling. We all know we shouldn't kill anybody. But, but the rest of the world has no problem killing you with their words. They will destroy you with their mouths. And yet we should not. And that little thing in your heart that says, that's not right, the way you're treating that person, it's the Holy Spirit of God and conviction. Why? Because you're not your own. And he says, do you not know? Why? Because we are members of Christ. We are his limbs. We are his body, his mouth, his hands, his feet. We should be serving. We should be speaking truth. We should be, when people talk to us, we should bleed Christ. Because he is in us and through us and and we are overwhelmed with him. Our cups runneth over with Jesus. That should be the case. For we are his members. And we know this already. This is why he asks it this way. Do you not know? When you, when you go and you spend time physically with someone like this, with, as a, he, he uses the word, this is porne, which is prostitute here translated. And that's because of what they were dealing with in their very day. But we have this exact same problem, and yet we can hide it a lot better. Y'all didn't know y'all were coming to get this kind of message today. Wow. Aren't you excited? We're talking about porneia in church. Oh, my Lord. Do you know God cares about that? I remember getting to college and, and, and being in men's groups and guys not realizing, Christian men not realizing that God cares about pornography. That he cares about something like that. In fact, he cares deeply because you know what I know? That will destroy you. It will. Because it starts there and then it goes somewhere more aggressive. Because we, our appetites just grow, grow, grow. Yeah, sure, we're not going up to the temple of Aphrodite on the Acrocorinth. We're just opening up our cell phone, and we're still with prostitutes. 
And women, you do something different. On average, you know, if you kind of study these things, we have a tendency as men to be visual. Women have a tendency to be communication, to be uh, verbally driven. And so you read these really wonderful books. Wonderful, I'm using that, you know. And they're all the same plot. Have you realized this yet? It's all the same plot. Same, same story, just a different type of guy. He's either a werewolf, a vampire, a billionaire, or something else. Or a surgeon. It's ridiculous. And it's not real. And those men don't exist. And those women men, they don't exist either. And Paul says, as Christians, we don't join ourselves with such. We don't, we don't link up. Because why? Because it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. The two will become flesh. Understand this. You keep linking up that way, you'll never be satisfied with what's real. Your very husband, your very wife will not be sufficient for you in this area. You'll want something more, something that isn't real. The body's not just physical. It's not just plumbing, y'all. It's spiritually significant because you've been joined to the Lord. So don't, don't idolize your body this way. Recognize it has a higher calling. Look at Philippians chapter 3. He says, Paul writes to the Philippian church, Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And their, their glory, they glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But friends, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Your God, what is it? Is it the big G God or is it your belly? Is it what you see? Is it your passions, your desires, those things you long for? Whatever it is that's got you right now going, man, wrap this, this message up so I can get home in this. Maybe that's not happening today. I hope not. There's a picture here that as Christians, we are, we are totally His. We've been linked in. We are now members of His body. We should live accordingly. Our desires now change. They line up with His. This is the picture here of godly marriage, in fact. The two will become flesh. Just out of Genesis and also Ephesians 5, it says, Therefore he shall leave his mother and his father and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Paul says this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Did you know that? We've preached that passage many different times. Did you know he's also using it here as an emphasis that we've been joined in such a way to Christ Jesus? Now, this is fascinating and very helpful, I think, because just on, a, just on a basic level, we as human beings can understand there are certain things we should not do in a marriage, right? We kind of know this. I probably should not go and sleep with another. That's going to be detrimental to your marriage. Just pointing that out. If you didn't know that already, I don't know what's going on with you, but here's a piece of information. That's a problem. You also know that, you know, I probably should spend time with her or him. If I don't, distance, and it doesn't always make the heart grow fonder. 
Distance in the sense of we are far from one another as far as I'm in this state and you're in that. Sometimes that can make the heart grow fonder. But distance when she's in the bedroom and you're upstairs is not the kind of distance that makes you fonder. If that's where you've been confused, I want you to know communication is key. Being together is key. Enjoying to do things together that don't just involve your children. Because otherwise when they leave the house, you guys have forgotten how to be one another. We've been, we've been mom and dad so long, we don't know how to be husband and wife. You better have a date night. You better start working on it. Or in 18 years, things are going to get right confusing. There's just a lot of things that I could say like Paul, do you not know? Well, I think you do. You do know. You know that these are things that sustain a, health, a healthy marriage. What's confusing, though, is that we don't treat Christ the same way. We understand this in our marriage. Paul says the mystery is profound. It represents who we are in Christ Jesus, which means the same things are true. I don't spend my affections on idols. I don't cheat on God with little gods. Mm -mm. Idolatry. It's out. It's out of the picture. I have to have communication with God. Distance from God does not make the heart grow fonder. I need time well spent with him. And you know what he never does? He never walks away. He never pulls away. He's at the table waiting for me to come sit down again. My problem is I keep running off. Distance. Close it. This is a relationship that matters to me. And I care what you think. I, and in a marriage, it matters how we spend our money. And, and like we make, we make an agreement as a couple, and this can cause great tragedy in your relationship if one party just spends, never asks questions, there's no budget, no one ever makes a decision. Some of you are living that way right now. You can fix this. Have a budget and talk about it. It's not, it's not, it doesn't sound fun, but it'll help, you, it'll help you so much. And yet, our marriage to Christ is the same. Do you know He cares what I spend? How I budget and what I, because my wallet shows so much about what I worship. Do I spend my time well with him? Do I spend my treasure well with him? Do I spend my talent for him? I'm, I'm married to Christ first, actually. I am the bride of Christ, and so are you. Before you're a husband or a wife, you're the bride of Christ. How are you spending that? Cheating on him with idols? You can change that. Praise God he does not destroy us as he has every right to. Instead he saves us. And it's calling. You feel it now, don't you? I'm calling, beckoning you. Come back to the table. Here's the third, the third way to submit to God with our bodies. Use your whole body to glorify God. Use your whole body to glorify him. We do things for his purpose. There's a spiritual reality, significance, and it's all about glory. It's all about glorifying him. He says in verse 18, flee. Don't fight, run. Some enemies we stand against. If you look at Ephesians chapter 6, 11, he'll talk there about standing firm against the schemes of the devil. He'll talk in other places. The scriptures will talk in many places about fighting and standing firm. This isn't that place. Here, flee. Run. Retreat. Why? Because there are so many things you stand firm against that are, that are outside the body, as he puts in 18, but this one affects your own body. Now, exactly what he's speaking on there is somewhat unknown. Some argue 
that this, this type of sin is against your own body, maybe he's referring to something like STDs. It could be that he's speaking of that, but more it's this idea, I think, of this physical oneness that you get in a marriage. And so if you're constantly in bed with idols, whatever that might be in your life, then you're one with them rather than one with Christ. And this, this will never work. That You cannot do both. You cannot be in bed with idols and also be married to Christ Jesus. They don't go together. And he won't have it. And so we have to give up on this one so that we can come back to the table in community, in communion with God. This is what he's talking about here in verses 18 on. And then he goes on to say a very fascinating passage in verse 19, which is a verse I often reflect on. And he says, do you not know for the last time, do you not know that your very body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Now that might be a good challenge just to answer that first question of all things are lawful, but are they helpful? If I engage everything in life the way I speak, what I eat, what I do, the way I think, the way I interact with people, if it has everything to do with the fact that the Holy Spirit resides in me and what I do affects that temple, that's going to start changing everything I do. I'm going to start going, wait a minute, I probably shouldn't eat or drink that. Why? Because it's going to, it's going to sap my strength, or it's going to make me think improperly, or it's going to... It's going to make me unhealthy, and the reason is not so much that I look great, and, and that's okay, whoop-de-doo. Like, I, I just don't know that God cares so much about that, because if he did, wouldn't he have all just made us all look the same? No, he made some of us short, some of us tall, some of us got funny-looking eyes, some of us got big ears. I got kind of big ears, and they get bigger all the time. Like, I, I know what's happening over time. I've seen my grandparents. I've seen my father. There's, there's a few things in your life that gravity never stops, the tip of your nose, your earlobes, y'all get ready. If y'all hang out with me long enough, I've seen what's coming. And God just, he's creative. And we don't all look the same. And we're not all attracted to each other. Praise God. That would be confusing. No, he's vari- he likes variety. And he did all this on purpose. And if that's true, then what is beauty? Beauty is knowing who I am what I am in Christ Jesus, knowing that very well and serving him with all that I am so that I eat healthy, not because I need to look a certain way, but because if I'm the most healthy, I'm the most useful and I want to be useful for Christ. If I go to the gym, it's not so that everybody can see me in there like that. It's because I don't want to just decline to the point where I can't do what I need to do for the gospel. So it's okay. These are, these are all good things. I'm just asking you Why? What is your motivation? If it's something other than Christ, then the motivation is not right. And it's not sustainable. Because guess what, my friend? You do not get younger. You won't. None of us are Benjamin Button. Not a single one. And I do find that somewhat unfortunate. Because I think it's kind of wild that I'm spending all of my greatest days and energy with four children in my house. It'd be so nice if I had like all of this power later when they're gone. It's not going to be the case. And God knows. He knows that if I tried to do this in my 60s, I don't think I could do it. That's why some of y'all, you're the most wonderful grandparents, and you know this because you get to send them back. And you can sleep. And when they, when they spend the night, you get a taste again, and you're like, all right, when are, when are y'all coming back to get these, these varmints? Yeah. None of us are getting younger. So I start asking this question. How am I taking care of the temple of the Holy Spirit? 
not for my own good, but for his. Why? And he gives us the very reason in verses 19 and 20. And this is some of the most powerful stuff in scripture. It's just wonderful stuff because you're not your own. You were bought with a price, an incredible price, an incredible price. You could not pay this price. Do you understand this? You could not be free. There was nothing you could do. There was a there was a price on your head so high, and the devil would like nothing more than to cash that in. And yet Christ paid it in his blood, in his very life. Why then should we glorify God because of that? We've been bought with a price. We are not our own. You are no longer in ownership of you. Boy, that's a countercultural thought there, isn't it? You are not your own. There's some phrases that we started using. I heard Christians using this during COVID, and I found that so ignorant that we would say, oh, well, my body, my choice. Now, I'm, I'm okay with that. Look, Christian, I got news for you. That's never true. You never get to say that because in Christ, his body, his choice. His body, his choice. Always. Always. That means I make decisions based on what he wants, not what I want. And so we need to stand firm on a better platform. Let's not go using language that's totally lacking biblical worldview. This is simply who we are. We are, we are Christ's. We are not our own. Bought with a price. So what? Glorify God in your body. That's the end state. Know that you're for his purpose. Know it's spiritually significant. And if you'd start to analyze your decisions, you already know that. The impact that what you put in or what you do with your body has on your spiritual life. You already know it if you begin to review. And So glorify God in all that you do. Glorify God with your bodies. This is what he says. Jesus redeeming the body with his own body. He writes... In Revelation 5, worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seals. For you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God with your blood from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Jesus did it. He purchased us. So now we live for him. His body, his will. His will, not my own. Use your whole body as an instrument for God. Romans 6 says, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Let me close with this. <laughs> This is kind of a dated illustration, but a, a movie I still thoroughly enjoy. Uh, I was kind of a runner back when uh, until I put on a little too much weight, but we'll, we'll talk about that another day. But This movie is called Chariots of Fire. Some of you have seen it. It's kind of an older movie, but it's based on a true story. And the man's name is Eric Liddell, a British runner, a, a Scotsman actually. And a, a quote from the movie that I found fascinating, still find fascinating, and something for you to think about. He was one of the first men to run the, uh, the mile in under four minutes, uh, which is extremely fast if you've ever tried to do that. Uh, my best time ever was, was 440, and I was hauling butt. But four, he broke the four-minute mile, and he kind of ran with his head back. <laughs> Weird running style. And he said this on many occasions, you know, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. He went on later after he kind of couldn't compete anymore. He went on to be a missionary in China where his father began to work there as a, 
as a missionary. I want to encourage you, friend, that where you are right now, perhaps God has put you there for a reason. Whatever it is you're skilled at, are you running for his pleasure? I'm not good at everything. In fact, I'm not good at a lot of things. I'm getting better at preaching, I think. And I do believe this is where God has me. And so I do this for his pleasure, not yours, certainly not mine. I do it for his glory. And I'm, I'm wondering, my friend, what could you do right where you are with your body that would give him the most glory? Glorify God with your body. Maybe he made you fast. <laughs> Maybe he made you smart. Maybe he made you good with your hands. Maybe he made you good in communication. Maybe you're good at teaching. When I run... I feel God's pleasure. When I preach, I feel his pleasure. When I use my gifts, I glorify God. Let me end with a, a, an, old, an old hymn that we kind of have, it's been a while since we did it, but uh, it's called Take My Life by Francis Havergal. The verses go this way, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in endless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart. It is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we meet together because of your good grace to us. The reason we bring our worship in this place, the reason we come in fellowship is first because you bought us with a price. The reason we do this is because God, you loved us first. There is no church apart from the cross. There is no church apart from your resurrection, Lord Jesus, and we know that. And let me first of all just say I'm grateful for that, God. The calling that you put on each and every one of our lives, it comes first from that source, that God, you loved us, you died for us, you purchased us with your blood, took on incredible difficulty for us that we could be free. That we could be truly free. And God, I admit, so very few of us understand how free we really are. Because we make daily decisions, Lord, and we confess them to you right now. We make daily decisions that put us back in bondage. Bondage, perhaps, to our just most basic needs. So we overeat. Our most basic desires... So we stay up later than we should. So we drink and eat things that actually are no good for us. Because we have a poor understanding. Or at least a, a lack of motivation. There's so many things, God, that master us rather than the other way around. We don't have dominion. Things have dominion over us. God, I, I'm asking for you to do something powerful in each and every one of our lives. And mine too. Would you help us to see how free we really are? To no longer put ourselves in bondage. 
that we could be fully free, mind, body, soul, strength. We could be fully free to serve you and worship you and glorify you. That's what you've made us for, ultimately for worship. God, let us, as Paul once wrote, throw off everything that so easily entangles that we can run this race and run it fast for your good pleasure. God, do that in us. Set us free from bondage. The little things, the little ties we put back in our lives, help us to break those down today. And God, I pray this week that as we are free, we would love you and serve you in, those, in, in our utmost and our best. God, do as you please in our life. I say along with the scriptures today, I know this. I'm not my own. I was bought with a price. And I'm so thankful. So God, I give you my life. Take my life. It's consecrated before you. It's yours. Church, say that with me. Dear Lord Jesus, this life is yours. Wholly yours. Totally. I give you my all. In Jesus' name, amen.